for today. Um, so many times we read the Bible and we see these big events that happen. Uh, one big event such as that is the resurrection. And we see the impact the resurrection had on the community of faith after it happened. We saw wonderful things happening. The Holy Spirit coming. People received boldness. And, and just all of these wonderful things happened. We think to ourselves, man, that's great that it happened back then. Can, can anything resembling that happen now? And the answer to our question is yes. Yes, it can. And last week, we looked at one way in which we can apply the resurrection to ourselves uh, now. And that's by realizing that the resurrection itself, the resurrection itself freed us from death, from death and hell. That the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel as seen in the resurrection has freed you and I from sin. Freed you and I from hell. Freed you and I from death. And one of the principles that we looked at is that now we as God's people can taunt death, right? And we could taunt the effects of death. Like Paul, we could say, oh, depression, where is your victory? Oh, depression, where is your sting? You've been swallowed up in victory. We can say, oh, anxiety, You've been swallowed up in victory. Anxiety, where's your sting? We can taunt death just like how Jesus taunted death. Now, there's something I have to say that I didn't get a chance to say last week. And here is it. When we talk about taunting death, that's not us making light of the effects of sin. Even in the passage that we looked at, John 11, we see Jesus being grieved over sin. We see Jesus being broken over the suffering of others. He, yes, he was taunting death, but at the same time, he was genuinely grieved at what death had done to God's people. And so in light of all of that, every week for the next uh, two weeks, uh, we started last week, this week, and then next week, we're going to look at another way in which we can apply the doctrine of the resurrection now. And the way we're going to do that today is by talking about how the resurrection frees us as God's people from bondage. From bondage. Now, John chapter 4, we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to begin at verse number 7, and then we're going to read down to verse number 27. This is a fantastic passage. Most of us have read it. I encourage you, when you read John 4, read it in light of John chapter 3. Because Jesus is dealing with two people there. One was a self-righteous Pharisee and the other one was an unrighteous uh, woman of Samaria. And look at how they dealt. he uh, dealt with both of them, you know, if you're looking for a Bible study. All right, John chapter 1. I mean, sorry, John chapter 4, verse number 7. Hear now God's word. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husbands and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem, the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither and the flower will fade. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen. Amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, this is your word. These are your words that you've left behind for your people. Holy Spirit, come now and seal these words to our hearts. I pray that as the message of the gospel goes forward, all of us will see our deep need for it and drink deeply. In many ways, all of us are in bondage. In so many ways, all of us are thirsty. And so now, Holy Spirit, come. Come and provide that need. Free us. Quench our thirst. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. In this passage, we see a woman in bondage. And interestingly enough, the theme of bondage and freedom pervades the entire Bible. From the garden, but especially when we come to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we see God's people in bondage being set free. And that paradigm is taken throughout the entire Bible. God's people are in bondage, and then God's people are set free. Paul picks up the same in Ephesians 4 when he says for, that when Christ was raised from the dead, he led captivity captive. What does he mean by that? He means that it's because of the resurrection, you and I have been set free. We've been set free. The resurrection is proof 
that the gospel is true and it's possible for all of us in here to be set free from sin because sin keeps us in bondage. And so today, what I want to do in the brief time that we have is talk about two things. First of all, we want to see a woman in bondage. And the second thing we're going to look at is how Christ sets this woman free. First of all, we're going to observe a woman in bondage. And secondly, how Christ sets this woman free. First, a woman in bondage. Look, I've been reading this passage for years now. Years. I mean, ever since I became a believer, I think I've read through John, right? Whenever you become a believer, the first thing they tell you is read through John because John talks about the gospel. And so that's what I did. And every so often, I would return back and read through John. And I always thought that what was keeping this woman in bondage was Jesus' words to her later on in the passage, in verse number 16 and 17, when Jesus exposes her promiscuity, her relationships with other men. Jesus says to her, uh, Jesus says to her, go call your husbands and come here. That was revelatory. And I thought to myself, you know what? It's her relationships with these men that was keeping her in bondage. But in actuality, if you read through the passage carefully, that's not what was keeping her in bondage. That was only symptomatic of the problem. What was really keeping her in bondage is Jesus' words in verse 13 and 14. Jesus says this, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be a spring of water welling up into eternal life. It's in those verses that Jesus diagnoses her problem. And, and it's, it's one of those statements that if you sit down and you meditate on it, and you just really think about what Jesus is saying, you'll realize that everything that Jesus did from the very point of John 4, the fact that he went through Samaria, he went through a well, he sat on the well, he asked this woman to give him water, all of that was leading up to those verses where he exposes what I like to call the two aspects of our nature, right? Jesus is talking to her, and he's revealing to her the two aspects of her, of her nature, and both of them are right in this passage. And he uses that by the interplay of water, and he uses that by the interplay of thirst. You say, Pastor, well, what are you talking about? Here's what Jesus is saying to her. Jesus is saying that, look, there are two aspects of your nature. One is physical, and one is spiritual. One is physical and one is spiritual. You see, from her perspective, she only thinks she has one aspect of her nature. She's a physical human being, and therefore she has physical needs that need to be fulfilled in a physical way. And Jesus looks at her and says, no, you've misunderstand the components of your nature. You're not just a physical human being that needs your needs filled in a physical way. You are also a physical and a spiritual human being. And both of your natures need to be fulfilled. Let me say it this way. Let's take water. Let's just say for a moment you're thirsty. You're really thirsty. You're about to die of thirst. By the way, I, I don't think any one of us has ever been there. You know, my children come to me all the time. I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. I'm going to starve. And I'm like, no, you're not. Right? You still got like three more days. Or if they're thirsty, like, oh, I'm going to die of thirst. I need something to drink. I'm like, no, you're fine. 
Like, you still got, like, five more days, right? But, but hear me. If you are thirsty and you're about to die, you can pray all day that your thirst is quenched. But unless you go and drink some water, your thirst will never be quenched, right? Like, all of us understands that. Like, if you're hungry, you can pray all day for God to fill your stomach. But unless you eat something, you will stay hungry. Jesus is saying that's one aspect of your nature. That's a part of our nature we all understand. But he is revealing to her another aspect of her, na- of her nature, and it's this. If you are spiritually thirsty and you're spiritually hungry, no amount of food and no amount of water can solve that problem. Do you see that in the passage? Look at what Jesus tells her in verse number uh, 13. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. In other words, yes, you can drink this water and be satisfied, but you'll need to drink the water again. You'll still be thirsty. But then he goes on, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, this is the spiritual water, will never be thirsty again. Her major problem was that she was trying to solve a spiritual problem through physical means. And can I say this? We do the same thing. Most of us don't understand this aspect of our nature, that we're both a physical human being, and uh, we have a physical aspect of our nature, and a spiritual aspect of our nature. Our society doesn't understand this. Why do you think every time somebody has a problem, we seek a physical remedy for it? If you're depressed, okay, there are times when chemically we're out of balance, and we need something to get us back into balance. But if you're perpetually um, depressed, that's a sign that you might have a spiritual issue that you need to uh, work on, as well as a physical. When you get bored, right? Boredom is, yes, sometimes boredom can be physical, but there's also a spiritual aspect to that as well. Are you paying attention to that? See, this woman had a physical, a spiritual longing, Her spiritual longing was that she needed to be loved. Her spiritual longing was that she needed to be validated. Her spiritual longing was that she needed safety and security. And where was she finding that? Through physical means. Notice with me again in verse 16. That's why Jesus went straight to her husband. Have you ever read this passage and wonder, what's the connection between Jesus telling her about her spiritual need? And then immediately he goes to, well, you have five husbands. The connection is this. This woman had a deep spiritual need. She needed to feel loved. She needed to feel provided for. She needed safety. And what was she finding that in? Hmm? The text tells us she was finding it in men. That's That's why Jesus intentionally said, go call your husband. In other words, she was looking to be fulfilled through physical union, marriage. But what she really needed to be doing is looking for another kind of covenant. And that's to be in relationship with God. And can I say this? Think about your own life as you go through your daily life. Are you aware enough spiritually that you have a physical and spiritual being? Do you often use physical methods to solve your spiritual problem? I had a friend, I have a friend, who struggles mightily with pornography and masturbation, and he's married, which, by the way, doesn't solve that problem, right? 
And this friend that I have consistently, he would call me and he would say, hey, I've fallen again. This happened again. And I was like, brother, um, obviously you don't have a physical need, right? You have a wife. What is the spiritual problem to which you are doing this? What, what is at root going on in your heart that you feel like this physical manifestation can solve? And we've been spending the last two, three years going through that. Getting down deeply of why he feels so unsatisfied with his wife that he continues to go outside of his marriage in this particular way. And at root, his problem is that he realizes now, he realizes that his spiritual need is that he just doesn't know how to be satisfied. He's discontent. And that discontent, that spiritual discontentedness in his heart and mind, he's racing after everything else but Jesus. Now, we might look at that and we say, well, pastor, that's an extreme example. No, because all of us do it. All of us use food to solve a spiritual problem. All of us use alcohol to solve a physical problem, all, a spiritual problem. All of us use fun to solve a spiritual problem. All of us do it because deep down, all of us are like the woman of Samaria. We don't know how to solve the deep-seated spiritual problems we have. And so we use physical means. And what Jesus is telling her is this. There's no amount of physical need. There's no amount of things that you can do if you have a deep-seated spiritual problem that can alleviate that. At the end of the day, you must come to him. That's why in verse number 26, Jesus says to her, uh, she says to Jesus, Jesus, I, I assume that you must be the Messiah. You're telling me all these things. And Jesus says, I, uh, I who speak to you, I'm he. What is he saying? He's saying, look, you've looked for all of satisfaction. You've looked for love. You've looked for need in all these other places through men. Now look for it in me. Ultimately, I and I alone can solve the problem in your heart. That's what Jesus is saying to her. Kenneth Bailey, a New Testament scholar, put it like this, and I love the way Kenneth Bailey put it. He said that as Jesus is talking to her, he realizes that she's in bondage, enslaved to her own desires. And what does Jesus do? Jesus seeks at every turn to elevate her. Notice all the ways Kenneth Bailey says that he seeks to elevate her, and they're all right in the text. First of all, he met her at a well when no one else would. No one else would. And historically, all the women would go together to the well and draw water together, and they'll talk about life, and they'll talk about family rearing and, and their uh, marital uh, problems or whatever. All of them would go together, but no one would go with her. She was alone, but Jesus met her at the well. Not only that, Kenny, Kenneth Bailey said he, he dialogued with her about spiritual matters when no one else would. No one else talked to her about the gospel. They couldn't. The five husbands, six men that she was with, none of them had the ability or cared enough about her spiritually to minister to her heart. None of them did, but Jesus did. Kenneth Bailey also said this, a Jewish man would have never asked her as a Samaritan for water, but Jesus humbled himself and did it. Jesus went to her and made himself vulnerable. At the beginning of the passage, we see that Jesus says, give me a drink. And he meant it. 
This is Jesus elevating her self-worth. Next, uh, Kenneth Bailey says that Jesus was willing to die for her something that none of her husbands would. Do you see that? That's a powerful aspect to this text. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who can fulfill our spiritual desires, our deep spiritual need. Now, how does Jesus actually do that? And the way Jesus do that is profound in this passage. Now, notice up to this point, every time Jesus tried to minister to her spiritual need, she made it about something else. Go back, look at in verse number seven, when Jesus asked her to give her a drink, immediately she went to, uh, in verse number seven, he says, give me drink. That was an indication that he's trying to solve her spiritual need. He's trying to meet that spiritual need. And immediately, what does she do? She goes to some social aspect, right? She points out the racism that exists between Samaritan and Jews. Verse number nine, um, she said, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So here's Jesus trying to help her spiritually, trying to fulfill her need. And immediately she goes to a social concern. Later on, he says, I will give you living water. And then immediately she goes to a political concern. She says, well, you know, Jacob gave us this well. He didn't give it to you. And then next, Jesus points out her lifestyle in verse number 16 and 17. And what happens after that? She immediately goes to a worship concern. She says, oh, I could tell you a prophet. Answer me this question. Which mountain should we be worshiping on? Do you notice what she's doing? It's the same thing that we, when we share our faith and culture, people of today do as well. Anytime you talk, try to talk to someone about the gospel, they try to bring up a social concern or a political concern or a worship concern. And you and I often get bogged down in those things. When we're trying to minister to our friends about the gospel, they bring up a social concern. What do you think about the racism that exists against black and white? Or they bring up a, so, a political concern. Who do you vote for? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Or they bring up a worship, worship concern. Why is it that you Christians have so many different denominations? What's going on here? All of these things distract us from the center of the gospel. Don't allow it to happen. As you share the gospel with people, don't get bogged down in social issues. Don't get bogged down in political issues. Don't get bogged down in worship issues. The center of the matter is that, these, that when we share our faith, we need to recognize that people need the gospel and we need to stay on mission. It doesn't matter who you vote for. doesn't matter what color of skin you are. doesn't matter what the social issues are. In fact, Jesus could have solved all those issues. And he could have because he had answers. He could have solved the political issue. He could have solved the social issue. He could have solved the worship question. And she still would have died and gone to hell. Christian, listen to me. Do not get bogged down in these issues. I'm not saying those issues are unimportant. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that when we get wrapped up in those issues, when we make that about the gospel, we lose everything. Jesus understands this. Jesus didn't answer her questions. He parried all the questions. He said, look, woman, what is the point here? He tells us the point. In verse number 21 and 24, he starts telling her about the gospel. She asked a question about worship. 
Where should we worship? Should we worship in Mount Garrison or should we worship on Mount Zion? And he looks at her and says, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Then in verse number 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now think with me. This is how Jesus solves her bondage problem. This is how Jesus sets us free. Jesus says, look, it's not about the social concern. It's not about the political concern. It's not even about the worship concern. It's about you worshiping God in spirit and in truth. What does he mean by spirit and truth? Think with me for a moment. What does spirit and truth do for us? Spirit and truth sets us free. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Liberty. What does um, Jesus say in John 8, 31 through 32? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall do what? Set you free. Set you free. She doesn't need to know about the social and political and worship issues. She needs freedom because she's in bondage. And Jesus is offering her freedom. Now, what does spirit and truth worship look like? First of all, spirit worship looks like being God-centered. That's what it literally means. To worship God in spirit means to have Christ-centered worship, Jesus-centered worship. You're not concerned about where to worship. You're not concerned about who you worship with. It's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. That's what he means by spirit worship. You're not concerned, overly concerned about even the doctrinal matters. You're concerned about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. But the second thing is he also mentions truth. It means worshiping according to the truth of God's word. And that's why we don't get distracted about the other things. Because we're called to worship God in spirit and in truth. And by the way, if you look at chapter 3 and chapter 4, the same message is consistent. In chapter 3, there was uh, the, uh, the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is emblematic, uh, emblematic of the unrighteous. Uh, sorry, of the, of the self-righteous. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Most of us fall into two categories of sinners. One is the self-righteous sinner, and one is the unrighteous sinner. In chapter 3, we meet the self-righteous sinner. How does the self-righteous sinner find freedom? The self-righteous sinner finds freedom by obeying. Obeying the law, obeying the rules, doing everything perfectly. That's how they find their righteousness. That's why when Jesus was talking to um, to Nicodemus in chapter 3, He said, you must be born again. Why? Because Nicodemus was banking on the fact that he was born a Jew and he can perfectly obey the law. Jesus says, no, you can't. You're self-righteous. You need to be born again and repent of your self-righteousness. And then in chapter 4, we meet the unrighteous. The woman who has been caught in the bondage of sexual sin. And Jesus says, you, you need to worship God in spirit and in truth. Stop making excuses for why you're not worshiping well. And that's what unrighteous sinners do, right? We make excuses for why we sin. We try to say it's because of political reasons, or it's because of social reasons, or it's because of worship reasons, right? That's why we're in bondage to sin. But Jesus says if you're self-righteous in here, you cannot claim any righteousness based on how good you are and what you do. 
And Jesus says, if you are unrighteous in here, you need to stop making excuses for your unrighteousness and turn to him. Both the unrighteous and the self-righteous need to hear the message to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what they desperately need. Augustine, in his uh, work, Confessions, some of us have read it. Um, Augustine makes this point, and it's so wonderful. Augustine talks about in his life, he spent half of his life as unrighteous, sinning, all manner of sins, living with women, partying, drinking. And Augustine said that was bondage. And then when Augustine became a believer, he got in with a, a, with a sect in which he became self-righteous, in which he looked down on the sinner. And Augustine said that he came to a point in his life where he realized that unrighteousness and self-righteousness both led down a path of sin and wickedness. And Augustine said he realized finally that his heart can find no rest until it finds its rest in Jesus. And so the unrighteous and the self-righteous both need to be set free. And only Jesus can set us free. We can set us free by reminding us that our worship should be done in spirit and in truth. Now, big takeaway. What's the big takeaway from all this? Here's the big takeaway. The big takeaway is simply this. Jesus died to set you free. And it's only by faith and by his grace that that can truly happen. If you all remember, Jesus said seven words while he was on the cross. He was dying on the cross. The sixth word is, I thirst. Everybody remember that? I know you have them all memorized, right? Um, the sixth word was, I thirst. And it, it always interests me to ask, like, say, well, why did Jesus say, I thirst? Because they tried to give him sour water first, and he said no. The reason why he refused the sour water because it was medicated water. And he didn't, want, he didn't want to be relieved of the suffering because he wanted to drink fully of the suffering that, the, say, uh, that God had laid before him. But he cried out, I thirst. And the reason why he cried out, I thirst, was in solidarity of each and every one of us inside here today that all of us thirst spiritually. All of us thirst spiritually and we suffer spiritually. But do you remember the seventh word? When he was given water, that gave him enough uh, lubricant for his mouth, gave him enough of the strength that he needed to cry out, it is finished. It is finished. Beloved, hear me today. That is a picture of who we are. We're thirsty spiritually in bondage to sin. And yet our Savior cried out, it is finished. Meaning the work of redemption has been completed and you and I have been set free. And so what do we do now? We live as free people. No longer, as Paul says in Galatians 5, in bondage to sin. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't owe sin anything. It's all been paid. And when it's been paid fully, it not only frees you from your sins proper, propitiation, but it also cleanses you from the guilt and shame of your sin, expiation. You're free. 
You don't have to feel guilty of the past. You don't have to live in the past. If Christ has truly set you free, you can look back on your sins and cry out, it is finished. It's been paid for. It's been done. You don't have to carry the bondage of past sins. Why? Christ has paid for that. You've been set free. Live free. You don't owe sin anything to do it because it's all been paid for. It is finished, beloved. Let's walk as free people. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel and the message of freedom. Whether we're self-righteous or whether we're unrighteous, the message is still the same. We need the freedom that can only be found in Jesus. And when Jesus has truly set us free, we're free not only from our sin and the penalty of our sin, but we've also been set free from the guilt and shame of our sins. Thank you so much that this is true. Thank you so much for the gospel. Help us to live as free people this week. In Jesus' name, amen.